Hi there folks, it's Matt here. We're going to get started in a second, but I just wanted to let you know that we go into a lot of various authors and articles and references with our special guest, Lana Polanski, that uh, maybe you aren't familiar with. And if you go to the website, abnormalmapping.com, you'll find our reading list that has links to everything that's referenced in this episode. Alright, that's it. Let's get to it. Thanks. Welcome to episode 22 of Abnormal Mapping. I'm your host, Matthew Marco. With me is regular co-host Jackson Tyler. Hello. And very special guest, Lana Polanski. Hello. Uh, Lana, do you want to introduce yourself or should I do the honors? You can do it and I'll correct you if you are mistaken <laughs> in any way. Okay. Um, <laughs> Lana is a art critic slash internet ne'er-do-well, uh, of high esteem. Uh, you can find her writing on Sufficiently Human. We've uh, plugged her Patreon many times, but we'll do so again. Um, and you can find her on Twitter at Mechapoetic. Uh, you write for your own site and many, many others, correct? Yeah, um, I mainly write independently now. Okay. Because you just, most sites just can't compete uh, with, with the crowdfunding. <laughs> you just, you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I mostly, I'm mostly crowdfunded now. Which is actually pretty liberating, um, nice. and and unstable. So, <laughs> um, and uh, I occasionally will write for the odd uh, oddball arts journal magazine. I write for the Arcade Review now. I'm there. I'm a permanent staff member there, uh, and I've written for five out of ten. Um, I'm about to pitch to Zeal. Uh, and I've written, I've written for Unwinnable, and I used to write for Killscreen, and I've written for a bunch of different places. But yeah, I, I usually focus on the smaller joints now, mostly because I find them more interesting, and I and I tend to have like more of a rapport with the people that run them. Okay, that's a very fancy way of saying that you are too good to be on this podcast. So thank you for coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if I did, if I felt that way, I wouldn't be here. We feel that way, though. Oh. Don't worry, I'm not that, I, I don't, I don't know. I know. <laughs> I don't feel that way, I have self-confidence today. I'm in a good mood. Yeah. You're not hosting, I'm hosting, so I gotta... <laughs> <laughs> no, own it, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm literally, um, I'm just this, I'm just this person. I'm, I'm in a bathrobe, I'm si- sipping my coffee, you know. So, I don't, I, I find it, uh, I'm still not used to people being in awe of me, I think that's, and that's not me bragging. That's me genuinely not getting it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think that's like a healthy response to that. Like I, I said, those words came out of my mouth, and I actually felt like an asshole right away, <laughs> <laughs> describing it like that. But yeah, yeah, no, well, it's uh, a weird thing. It is a weird yeah. thing to be respected for my work and mm-hmm. be admired in any way is ridiculous and weird it's great i appreciate it don't stop doing it it's nice but um (laughs) (laughs) 
Also very, Just very the, co- the, con- the, the concept of like having a reputation that precedes you is yeah. the scary thing in all ways. Yeah. Good and bad. Yeah. yeah. I don't understand it at all. You're still <laughs> Lana, Lana from the block. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> she did that to make Stop. Jackson sad. And oh, why? <laughs> Let's go with that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, we don't really have a framework. We have a game club game that you chose for us that we'll talk about at near the end of the podcast. But okay. uh, you, when I first started following you, you identified as a games critic and no longer do so. And that's, yeah. I think, the thing I wanted to talk to you about most. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that's something that that's like a weird slow evolution. Mm-hmm. Not that slow mm-hmm. actually because I mean it's slow in terms of games because everyone retires at like 30. But uh it's like 4 years or 5 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um I definitely didn't start out thinking of myself as what would now be, like, an art critic. Like, I guess in the back of my head I'd figured, well, I'm in this sphere of art criticism, but what I specifically do is games criticism. But Mm. when I came to games writing and I was, like, 19, and I told, like, people accuse me of being, like, a pretentious liberal arts hipster, and that's really funny to me because I literally have a liberal liberal arts degree. I literally do. (laughs) It's hilarious when people are like, oh, you got that. You're like, you're right, you're right on the money. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, I got this degree. Not hiding it. Like, what do you expect? Not, like, this idea, yeah, this idea that I'm supposed to be like ashamed of it or something. Like, no, it's been immensely helpful to me. It's like, I'm really glad I have it. It's really, it's a really good set of skills, actually. And you should consider maybe acquiring them. Um, like, reading comprehension is really good to have and communication <laughs> skills. <laughs> Are, like, amazingly, when your job is reading and writing, you, like, having skills that accompany those things usually is really good for you. Um, I know, it just blew your minds, right? Whoa. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I came in with a, a, a liberal arts background, mostly in, in literature and creative writing and, like, art history, uh, with a smattering of politics. And, cause that's, that's, and, and, and formal logic, which they make you do for one year, which is kind of what liberal arts is. Uh, and then I, I went and I, and I was doing my, my journalism major and my, my English lit minor while I was writing professionally. So I was getting sort of on the job training. It's like, mm-hmm. I didn't even have to apply for a student internship cause I already had one. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I, I came into it and I was, like, learning about the the practice and the processes of journalism and criticism, which is sort of this cousin-sister thing that's sort of under the same umbrella. And I noticed all of these people were doing criticism, like, but they were all calling themselves journalists with no distinction. And I thought that was really weird because I don't know any other field where people do that. Like, yeah, I- like yeah, I mean, as a critic, you definitely will need to, to use um, and understand journalistic processes and skills, but you're doing something a little bit different, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, uh, there's a little bit of this in uh, film writing, especially yeah. online, where no one can make money being a critic, so they have to do a news beat also to pay the bills. Right, yeah. Um, but that's kind of the only other place I could see it. I mean, you know, trade press stuff. 
I guess the, well, that I, line gets blurry there. I think the thing with the film stuff is it's the same exact thing that's going on in games writing, but there also existed like a century of critical film writing and critical framework beforehand, but that just never existed with games, so we just had this weird everyone's a journalist nonsense blog. It's weird because, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, films had, like, um, like, Le Cahiers, for example. Like, films yeah. had a huge history of people who were sort of a middle ground between academia, academia and, like, the actual, like, film press mm-hmm. who were writing about it, who were writing sort like, public intellectuals, I guess, yeah. is what you would call them, which is kind of what I think I am and what Zolani is, what you guys do. It's public intellectual work. Um, Catherine Cross is a public intellectual. She's also an academic, but she writes publicly and accessibly. Yeah. Um, and games has, I mean, games actually do this. I mean, this is a huge problem, right? Because we're really ahistorical in games. Like, we don't remember our history at all. And a lot of us are so young that we were, you know, when this stuff was being done, like when all of a certain era of, era of games were coming out, you know, or when a certain era of games writing was coming out, you know, I was 10, 11 years old. So, of mm. course, I don't remember it. Um, and there's no real institution um, that really, except for critical distance, that really does a good job archiving it. So, and I guess good games writing does it a bit too. Um, and there's old games writing, but I don't know how, how current they are, like, in terms of actually finding stuff and, and tweeting it out and whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's, other than, other than, you know, the curators uh, that I mentioned in, like, maybe Zoya Street, there aren't that many, like, game historians. So we we tend to we, we tend to forget like, our history a lot. Well, I I was just going to say that one of the most fascinating things uh, that like I've been seeing is Cameron Kunzelman doing those like old AEGM posts, and yeah, you remember, yeah. oh, all this stuff existed already and yeah, has it for did. decades. It has, it has, and we just don't see the cycle because we don't actually take a step back to think about anything. Right, everything feels so new and immediate all the time, which is something that I want people to. I actually had a podcast about this. I actually want people to mm-hmm. suspect a little bit more. Um, yes. Like, who's, like, rewriting the narrative for you? Because mm-hmm. we don't remember it. Like, I, 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 I was asked to participate in a talk at, uh, in a class that I actually took when I was going to university. So I'm going to be talking at the same class that I actually studied in, which is weird. Um, and I, and I did the, the reading for that week, and the reading is from, like, it's like a Celia Pierce, Tracy Fullerton, and, uh, more Janet Morey is her name, I think, um, from 2004, when I was, like, 13. Yeah. And they're writing about, um, like, a regender. That it's basically taking the premise of A Room of One's Own and applying it to video games. Mm-hmm. But they were doing this stuff in, like, 2004. So none of this is particularly new. And they, and they also cited a bunch of, like... Here's something else that was really scary to me. A bunch of other female critics and academics, most of whom I'd never heard of. Like, I, I, I know who Celia Pierce is, and I know who Tracy Fullerton is, and I, the, the other person that they mentioned was, uh, Brenda Laurel. I know who she is. She wrote Computers as Theater. Mm-hmm. But most of them I'd never heard of in my entire life. What was weird, though, is that all of the old female scholars, feminist scholars, and writers like uh, Frances Hodgson Burnett and Hélène Sissou and Simone de Beauvoir. Like, I, I know all these names. 
Like, yeah. I know, like, Charlotte Perkins Gilman was another one, Virginia Woolf, obviously. I know all these people. I remember them. I learned about them. They're part of our, our, uh, kind of cultural dialogue. The, the part of the, they're, they're, they're woven into the fabric of our cultural lexicon. They're recognizable names. But then you have all of these women who have been working in games for a really long time, for decades, who just sort of fade into obscurity and no one remembers them. So. I think it's like a tragedy that all these game writing stuff, its culture is formed around the internet, which is in essentially the perfect archival tool, and it has been used to enforce a culture of moment-to-moment thinking. Mm. And that's really sad. Yeah. It might also be something to do with the fact that games culture is not as, like, permanent. Uh, it's not as permeated into the rest of culture as much as we like to think it is. And that's how no, people yeah. in general can kind of just sort of fade into the background and do all I this mean, intellectual mm-hmm. work and no one remembers it at all. I mean, also, games culture trains people to be always, like, novelty-seeking and forward-thinking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not newness. Like, Walter Benjamin has a really good... Basically, if you, like, want to understand exactly what games as, like, products are, just read, like, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, because it'll clarify a lot of things for you. But he basically has this thing about how there's... The difference between what you mentioned, which is novelty, which is reproduction of the same old thing, the familiarity in a new package, versus actual Mm -hmm. genuinely new things, which people tend to abhor, because they don't understand them. Uh, so when someone tells you something is new and flashy and exciting and, and some forcing something else into obsolescence, they're usually lying to you. It's usually the same old shit in a shiny aluminum package over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of the reason that we have, we're so stymied and stagnant. We have trouble moving forward as a culture is we have no way of looking back because everything is just this like goo in terms of like mm. our historical consciousness. Like, I don't, I, yeah. I'm, I'm learning things now. Like, I'm 20. How old am I? I'm 23. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you, doesn't that tell you something? I can't remember how old I am. I'm 23. And I'm learning things now about history. And I've been writing for four or five years. And I'm learning things oh, that I'd never knew this, existed. The, the idea that you could be someone who's like seen as, oh, that's Lana, she writes about this stuff and has been doing it for a while, and yet you're just 23. Exactly, the 23 is, can be considered this kind of old guard criticism thing is a terrifying mm-hmm. in really, terms of building really, a culture. It's interesting to me because when I think of like old guard criticism, I think of Leah Alexander. Like, as, like, yeah, the bastion of that. And yeah. she's not even old. Like, she's only a few years older than me. I'm 29. And, like, you look at that and it's like, that's the old guard? Like, what are we even doing? That's what's... Right? Yeah, that scares me a lot. That's really something that... The idea that I'm, like, 23 years old and can be considered old hat. And people are mm-hmm. like, where's the young blood? I'm like, I'm, are you serious? <laughs> and yeah. Is the, I, like, the, the idea that the solution has to be young blood, I think, is yeah. also a problem. Yeah, because we keep vampirizing it. And then leaving those people, like, impoverished and with no mm-hmm. legacy. Yeah. Which is not a very good solution. Like, I think we should probably always have room to invite new people into the discourse, but you should also have some kind of sustainable infrastructure so people can build a career. And we don't have that. We just burn people out and dispose of them. 
Yeah. I mean, the the idea, at least in mainstream writing, is that there's always going to be a generation of young people ready to take that slot because the people are seen as disposable. Yeah, Joel, you know that Jacobin piece, uh, You Can Sleep Here All Night, has that really good section about... It's not about writing, it's about um, development. But Mm -hmm. what it's talking about, it's talking about the relationship between uh, for-profit private schools in, in the United States, like Phoenix University who extract exorbitant fees uh, from students who then go into debt because they have to apply for student loans to even pay for these courses. Um, and and they're like trade schools, so they're like specialized courses. Mm-hmm. So they offer like game design as a course, which is completely useless for anything else. Um, and then it creates a revolving door policy because as soon as you have that degree, you're already like 100K in debt or whatever ridiculous number it is. Yeah. Um, and you're, uh, a lot of these, like, a lot of, uh, the, not the major studios, but the major publishers who are, that's where the major studios kind of take their orders from, um, are hiring young people below value and pushing out the veterans, uh, and then overworking them often without overpay, uh, overtime pay or benefits or job yeah. stability. Well, I, yeah, because the systems funnel them into these jobs. Yeah, and then they they're not making enough to pay off their debt. I mean, it's not it's not that different than like a company town system. No, um, yeah, and so like that's part of how you're getting games like Assassin's Creed Unity, by the way, because you have low morale, mm-hmm. you have veterans who are leaving and and willing to take the risk on an independent studio because this is like they're being pushed out of their tenureship. Um, or they're not even given the opportunity to get it. Um, and the young people who are coming in are inexperienced and overworked. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, like, on some level baffling that, like, last year's Assassin's Creed, like, Black Flag, put in what is literally, like, a formal f- cry for help about what working conditions are like yeah. in the Ubisoft studio. And, like, people yep. applauded them for it as, like, this fun little thing to put in. But, like, nobody looked at that and said, like, this is no, a problem. No, this is literally, this is, I mean, I, I genuinely think that the aesthetic in Unity is beautiful, but that's me. But it's it's not like that on purpose. I mean, I think if you were a really intrepid uh, game designer and you wanted to use that glitch aesthetic to do something interesting, you probably could. But uh, this was not the result of, you know, some beautiful, visionary, surrealist work. This was the result of fatigue and low morale. That's what this is. Yeah. And the fact that you can have uh, a games press that is all very consumer rights, getting things should not be broken, and that not connect that to, like, labor rights yeah. and unions and games and not make that connection is... Unity is a cry for help. I don't, know. I d- I don't help. know how that exists. Yeah, Exactly. No, it's a cry for help. It's, you know, we're overworked, we're underpaid. And we can't keep doing this. That's what that game is saying to people. And people are just sort of overlooking it. Like they just, it's just like a commodity that failed to live up to its dollar value for people. But they're I, not I, noticing I the, think... the, the labor conditions, the, the, the reality of the labor conditions that produce that. And I think Matt was like also referencing the fact that in the game before that they just had you, the hub world was you worked in a video game studio in a tiny cubicle and like they laid that all bare for you and in the most and no like the executive ways. was even threatened enough by the idea of that to say don't put that in there 
because yeah. nobody actually cares. No, not, nothing's going to change as a result. And it's literally been like this for a really long time. Like, this is kind of normal. Um, well, yeah, because like you were saying about company towns and everything, it, the stuff with the video game industry is not new. It didn't start in, 19, in the 80s and then keep going. It's been around for years. Yeah. It's old business practices this still a, work. Yeah, this is a... This is a really old business practice. I mean, I have a friend who works for a large company, and I, I'm not. I'm gonna re- let him remain anonymous to not compromise anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But he said to me verbatim, "I know I sold my soul to the devil for a decent paycheck." That's what he said to me verbatim. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that tells you something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean that that that's. There's a direct relationship between our kind of ahistorical gooey consciousness that, that we just talked about and the shitty labor conditions that produce these games that are, are do- like demonstrating just how unsustainable they are as products and how unsustainable mm-hmm. the industry is. Those cracks are showing. Um, there's a really, there's a direct relationship between that and the lack of empowerment of people to say like things, one, we're not always like this and B should not be this way. It forces us to to uh, produce and and engage with a genetic fallacy that like this is just the way things are and this is how they will always be. Yeah. And it let, allows ourselves to not only exploit ourselves because we have to sell our labor for whatever we can get, but also to exploit other people as well. Uh, like, like the not not just it's not just the labor conditions of the actual the the creative the intellectual labor that goes into producing games but also the manufacturing that goes into games is has a tremendous human cost the world over mm-hmm. so how do we get from talking about me being an art critic to this i i don't know <laughs> i was sitting here thinking about that and i don't actually know how these dots connected this way i'm just i'm such a like a i'm like i'm such a marxist in my in the depths of my soul I, we're the same way as yeah. that all roads lead to moaning about capitalism eventually. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I mean, you start I, a conversation within half an hour, you're going to be being sad about why the world is the way it is. I guess it's just, it's really hard for me to disconnect the political ideological conditions of the industry from like my own relationship to it professionally. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. the things that I've experienced personally, even as like, like I, when I, my friend who said, you know, I've sold my soul to the devil for a decent paycheck. And I said to him, you know, um, well, I have, you know, I have no job stability, and uh, I had to fight tooth and nail to get a decent income. And, you know, I had, after four years of working, I had to, or three years of working, I had to fight for an additional year to busk for the money I have now. Uh, but at least I have my freedom. I have no stability and no benefits, <laughs> you know. I mean, this is exactly why I work, like, a day job in a totally boring, featureless office environment that has nothing to do with any of my interests. Mm -hmm. Because I want to have a paycheck that I'm not... Like, I don't want my passions dependent upon, like, how I feed myself, you know? Yeah, I mean, I totally understand that. And if you can do it, more power to you. Mm -hmm. No, Uh, like, it's it's also a problem. It's also exhausting. I wish I could pour that energy that I spend, like, eight hours a day into, like, pursuits that I actually care about. But on some level, like, the idea, like, your idea of, like, busking for the ability to write stuff, like, that is also, like, that's not an ideal scenario. No, it it, it definitely isn't. Um, but, like, I, I've tried the, uh, having a secondary job while also trying mm-hmm. to write, and I just found myself exhausted all the time. Yeah. And unable to concentrate. 
And I already have difficulty concentrating, so that was really not helpful. Uh, and I didn't like a lot of what I was producing, because I was so strung out all the time. Uh, yeah, th- yeah. This is how I felt be- trying to be like a full time writer. My mine was about movies, but the hustle was enough to like totally burn me out. Mm-hmm. No, I just I couldn't focus on either job particularly well. So as soon as I started making enough money to sustain myself on writing, because um, I still I, I basically technically still have that other job. I've just been on hiatus forever because it was a, another kind of freelance job I can do from home. Um, but with an actual company. <laughs> with like mm-hmm. actual real labor standards, um, and uh, but I, I I waited until I could get enough money from my writing that I didn't have to really do it anymore and I could still survive. Um, and then I kind of went on hiatus and, and started writing more uh, full time, and I've been doing that ever since for like it's got to be like a year. So that's where I'm at right now. And, uh, over the last four months, or what is it? It's six months now that this crap is been Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, six months or so. Yeah. So that was at that point where I kind of decided, like, okay, I've been a game critic for, for a long-ass time now in terms of video game writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think I want to really focus that much on games anymore. <laughs> I still want to write about games, but I, I don't want to make the culture and the industry my, my primary focus. I, I, I'm tired of leading people by the hand and trying to write about things like economic issues and ideological issues and also formal issues from a non-necessarily ludocentric point of view. Um, and doing like close reading text analysis, which was like kind of my jam from the very beginning. And, like mm. trying to like pull people along and like, like, gently get people to understand these things. It's like, you know what, I've tried to do that, I've had some middling success, but the more I look at it, first of all, I had a string of tweets today, like, first of all, most of the games that I play that are retail that anyone will pay attention to, 99% of them I find unbelievably boring, and redundant, and repetitive, and monotonous, and it's just, it's a chore. I don't like playing them. I, I much prefer playing smaller games. I I have certain aesthetics I tend to prefer usually more as kind of the avant-garde, op-art, Dadaist kind of weird shit that I like. Um, but also just games that kind of um, borrow from other sort of uh, aesthetic movements of the past. Like I saw a really nice one called uh, Force Guy, I think it was called. And it's like it's got like this like impressionist aesthetic, which I've never seen in games before. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just games doing interesting things. Um, and trying to use sort of different lenses and approaches and methodologies to create effective experiences that I just don't see in a lot of retail games, and I got bored of it. So I decided, I'm not going to put up with this. It isn't worth it. The industry doesn't have my back. Uh, I don't like the games that get any get me any visibility or attention. I don't like having to play them. So instead, I'm going to focus outwards to the wider sphere of art, because I know there are people in those communities, um, in, in visual arts, in other kind of media arts, in literature, who actually care about, like, substantial critical writing about games. I know they care. I've, I've spoken to them. Um, and I think I'm going to focus my attention more, like, pleading the case for these little interesting games to those people instead, and, and trying to see what I can do. 
with that, and, and I, I decided I would be a more general interest arts critic at that point. Mm-hmm. Like, way way less a difference in what you're saying and way more in who you, ha- who you have to talk to, because there's this implicit agreement in being a quote-unquote games writer that you have to uh, reach and pull people who do not care into no. caring about something, and that has to become your mission, yeah. whereas that's so an unfair burden to put on someone who just wants to write and be a critic, and I just... The fact that we make people do that is bad, and more power to you for just uh, saying, fuck, it. fuck this. Fuck this. Yeah. Fuck this. Like, I, I just decided, you know what, these people don't deserve me. I can have no. a literal white supremacist hate group coming after me and my friends, and this is an industry that will do nothing to help. So, I, like, this is, this is an industry that has trouble saying, you know, people who host child porn on their site is probably a bad thing. Like, this is hard for them. So I don't want anything to do with these people anymore. It's not even, mm-hmm. you know, the out-and-out reactionaries, because it's... Ob- I mean, saying that you hate a group of, of belligerent reactionaries does not make you a superstar in my mind. It's the least you can do. Um, yeah. But simply having the guts to say we don't stand for this and we don't want you here, and so much of the industry just can't do this... Uh, yeah, no. I mean, these are the people with the power to see something. They don't. I'm gone. Bye. I also think... Like, just from a personal standpoint, the broader your, like, critical base is, the better the criticism is. Mm-hmm. Like, I've always been a, someone who believes that, like, multidiscipline, like, uh, what do I want to say here? Like, uh, like, breadth of experience and, uh, cultural literacy across, like, a whole bunch of spectrums, they can only help. Mm-hmm. Like, well, you, like yeah. people who are like, I'm just a games critic and all I do is play games and, like, my framework for games is, oh, they're like these four biggest movies every year that I went to see. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's like, that, that's not a framework, that's not a lens through which you can make or critique anything, like, yeah, effectively. That's like, that's literally like saying, well, not literally, but it's, it's in effect like saying, you know, I am a hard nosed film critic, but I just only ever watch Chris Nolan movies. Like, that's kind of what it's like. <laughs> I'm a hardest film critic, but I can watch every film I've ever seen in a day and be done. I'm a I'm a Chris Nolan Batman expert. That's my that's my <laughs> special uh, specialization. I'm a, a hard nosed film critic, and I've only seen movies that were made after I was born. Yeah, I know a lot of those. Oh, they exist. There's loads of them. That's the worst part. Is that's just that's a uh, idea that exists now, and th- it goes back to what you're saying about having a understanding and care about his historical perspectives and ideas in all mediums, I guess, like just culturally. Yeah, no. Um, so that's why I've, I've really kind of dedicated myself more to a building an infrastructure, trying working with people like, like TJ Thomas and Zelani and, and Austin, the, the various Austins, uh, mostly Austin Howe, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, and just sort of trying to build, like we, I've, I've spoken about this to Zelani. We're talking about like building something where like small games people have a a way of ethically and reliably distributing their work without impoverishing themselves, um, and that they can do this without it. You know, they they don't have to worry about having windfall fame and windfall cash in order to make a living. Um, and I noticed when we were talking about this, like we're talking about building a middle class for games people. That's yeah. like what we're talking about. Um, so, you know, I've more, I've dedicated myself more to doing that, building more of a kind of an archive of, of, of a, a 
knowledge base for yeah. smaller games um, and a critical body for smaller games, which is something I've been doing with my my peers for a little while now. Um, and uh, sort of trying to reach out into the broader world, connect games into the broader world, instead of like even even a lot of like hard nosed kind of game academic guys. Um, they tend to be very ludocentric. They tend to be very industry centric, um, and they tend to be. Very, it, it's not even the formalism that bothers me about them. It's more the game's exceptionalism, the system's exceptionalism. Um, mechanics exceptionalism yeah. that I find really um, distasteful, personally. Um, not yeah, to, the the idea that a game can be boiled down to like like a perfect good recipe. and bad and yeah yeah and that that assumption is like you said it's what tickles me because the formalism debate that's been going around is like I feel missing the point and that's the thing I find very uncomfortable when approaching a certain area of games criticism. Yeah. That's not how I think about anything. No, I mean, form definitely does matter, but yeah. in relationship to, like, content and politics and other things. Like, uh, form is a container, it's in service to, like, what the thing is expressing. It's not the, th- that, like, the form is not the thing itself. It's a vehicle for other kind of more expressive content elements. And sometimes those things, especially in games, those things can kind of blur very easily that the line between content and form is not especially clear. Um, and that's, I feel like that's a far more interesting question than just what is the perfect form of game? Like a, like a platonic question. I feel like that's a boring tech fetishist question that doesn't really get us anywhere. Cause there's mm. like no convincing, satisfying answer to that. And the only people who have the, the ability to define it have significant capital to create a craft a kind of a narrative for what games should and should be um, as commercial products. And they so, they don't yeah. end even, they don't even do a good job of it. No, not really, because they can't because they overwork people to death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I, I yeah I, I just I, I don't know how you can be. I'm just like crapping, like I'm like getting all over industry now. I'm like going all over like the game studies guys, <laughs> like just making enemies everywhere. But I don't know how you can call yourself a formalist and then utterly detach yourself from systems of power. Well, I think that's the thing is they can't. Like, if form is an empty container, formalists aren't trying to see who can make the best empty container, the the best container filled with the stuff they like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The they assume is just the only thing. Because yeah. it's like the same, it's the same thing as like, keep your politics out of my game. It just assumes this set of cultural standards as apolitical. Uh, right. It's like this, I see a very big overlap there in how those discussions are. And yeah, There's another... I guess I'm joining in crapping in all of the games. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> burn bridges. Uh, As the one dissenting voice, like Avi B has been talking a lot about how zeal is a very formalist, like place for criticism, even I'm, though it doesn't fall into these traps. I'm not anti-formalism. I, I love zeal. And I want to yeah, make exactly. that very clear. I'm not anti. In fact, most of my writing has a very formalist bent. It's just not ludocentric. Like mm-hmm. I, when I write yeah. about things like, like I don't know, paratext or poetics. Like, I have to talk about form. But yeah. I always talk about form in its relationship to content and what it's doing to content and how it's expressing content and what it might be ideologically assuming. 
And when you're, that's kind of what good formalists do, I think, is not just talking about this perfect, like, container that, like, um, like, absolutely, like, purely contains games in this, like, perfect, like, reproducible way, but also why it's doing it in that particular way. And what are alternative form models that you can use to express things differently? Like, the ideas of form as absolutely reducible to some perfect set of elements, I think, is fundamentally wrong backwards. And it, and in, it kind of disrespects the legacy of what formalism is, which is this really massive, expansive thing that spans, like, different art forms and different eras and has a bunch of different people discussing, like, you know, I feel like a lot of these guys, you know, they, they've read their Jesper Jewel and they, their Espen Arseth and those guys, but when was the last time they picked up Roland Barthes? When was the last time they picked up Susan Sontag? Like, these people are formalists and they matter too. And they seem to assume that anything that isn't ludic formalism isn't really formalism, which is yeah. weird and reductive and fundamentally inaccurate. That's my, that's my rant. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you on this. So that's like my my formalism is more of a is more literary, but there are people who bring in all kinds of like art critical stuff, but from visual arts, or they bring in theatrical stuff or cinematographic. Like uh, Gita Jackson has like a film studies background, so she yeah. can actually really interestingly talk about like like frame rate uh, or resolution um, and why those things matter visually. Like in terms of visual storytelling, mm. so Cause I've been doing a similar degree in like film studies at the moment, and the that, that, that's one of the lenses I come at it with, and wanting there to be way more understanding of visual language yeah. that there appears to not be, and yeah, like yeah, all those approaches that come from other mediums or art forms, yeah, uh, coming into games criticism is a very important thing. Yeah, I, I just wanted to point it out for people who might not have listened uh, a couple months ago we had mike joffe on the cast and he talks yes. at length about how he thinks about play as informed by his experiences with theater and specifically improv right as a way to construct game systems and i think that's another like great lens to look through this stuff through yeah that's a really good lens like that i brought up before computers is theater which is the whole premise of that book is that you can use uh like uh virtual spaces as a stage um uh Sort of like, like, like Hamlet on the holodeck kind of idea. Mm. You know? Yeah. Sort of like the, the virtual stage is, is a stage for, um, not only like, like theatrical play, but also from, from the point of view of the audience itself too, is participating in what would be called like Boalian theater, where you have the ability, the, you can act, you can be an actor within the play itself and not just, uh, a recipient of information. So. I don't like I don't like using the term agent. I don't like agency um, in the context of of like mediated spaces like games. But I think actor is probably a more accurate term for that. You can mm-hmm. act within mm-hmm. the confines of certain parameters. You're not really an agent, but you can definitely do things. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can fulfill a certain role. And, I think and, I think agent uh, implies a sort of primacy where actor yeah. implies collaboration. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it also, you know, actor also, it implies collaboration, but it also implies, you know, um, like there's a recognition of a, of a kind of a magic circle. Um, there's a, a set of rules that you're agreeing to and abiding by. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a premise, um, that you're, that, that you're agreeing to. 
um, that is sort of decided a priori before playing. Um, and then you act out um, what the game itself is trying to evoke or kind of trying to um, express. Like, you you act out the values and the principles of, of the mediated space itself and the ideology of the space, which isn't... That's, like, an interesting formalist question for me. Like... Yeah. And then you can talk more about how different forms, um, for instance, will encourage different play styles, but also encourage, like, different ideological attitudes and also reinforce them, which is something you can bring back into real life. And that's how you get, like, video games of the oppressed... Which is Mike Jaffe's site, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. it's but it's also uh, I th- I don't know if he got that from the Gonzalo Frasca essay, but Gonzalo Frasca wrote a piece about Boelian theater and its relationship to video games, um, based on pedagogy of the oppressed. So I don't know if he got it from that. I'd have to ask him, but it's a nice little relationship. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I can go on at length about that, but that's how you get, for instance. You know, um, games which, like Austin Walker talked about, like the new power fantasy, games which um, reinforce ideas of, like, meritocracy and capital acquisition, and then you get people who, like, worship um, industry moguls, for instance, or they, they see the industry as itself meritocratic when it's not. And that's where games can themselves act as a sort of propaganda for real-world apparatus. Uh, and that's why it's really important to note when you're, if you call yourself a formalist, it's really, really important that you acknowledge that form reinforces ideology. So you can't disconnect it, uh, from politics and pretend like it's like some pure neutral thing, because it's clearly not. Yeah. Like, Stephen Byrne wrote that whole thing about, um, you know, RPG systems and how capitalist they are, and I played a bunch of Fantasy Life, which is exactly that, which is what uh, Austin Wolf wrote about. And th- I don't know how you could look at that and see them in a environment that is disconnected from all these values that are being propagated by the games and the wider industry and how it sees itself I mean, I, in yeah. this kind of strange space. This everything we've talked about is weirdly connected. Yeah. In the if we took a step back, it all becomes blindingly obvious. Everything is connected, and like my brain is like a beehive. By the way, like this is how mm-hmm. I am in my head all the time. <laughs> Just, uh, but like that's part of what I think is the value of being a critic to point out things like this. Yeah. Um. Because I mean, if you're like a game dude and you're and you're pushing forward these ideas, of course, it's really easy to assume this is like kind of the natural state of things because it's always sort of pandered to you. So, of course, you assume that things are basically egalitarian and, you know, this is how way, the way that things should be. Like, of course, you're going to make that once assumption. You, once, you, once you've analyzed, like, these systems and how they work and reinforce themselves, it's very easy to forget when you're in them yeah. how invisible they all are. Right, yeah, and it's like, I don't, I don't think that I can ever really step outside of them. I... It's again like being an actor is part of being an actor implies a yes. certain consciousness too. Like mm-hmm. it's not just being a cog. It's like if I'm an actor, then I can make certain choices based on the system I'm in um, to act one way or another within it. Like I can I can decide how I'm going to act and who I'm going to act with and how I'm going to present myself. Like I I'm always sort of embedded within a mediated space. Um, 
which is Alani and I have talked about this a bit, which is why the term agency, even in the real world, doesn't tend to apply very well, whereas actor, like, acting is, is, is probably more por- uh, appropriate, um, to borrow from Judith Butler, you know, the idea of performativity. That ideas about the self and identity in society are, are sort of like reified through, um, repeated activity, um, of certain rituals. Which is a lot of what actors yeah. do. Uh, so I feel, I feel agency implies like defining, yeah. whereas actor is being aware of your role, aware of your yeah. limits, and expressing yourself within them. Exactly. Yeah, that, you put it better than I did. You know, you, mm-hmm. there's an implication of, of certain parameters, and then you can sort of work within them. You can maybe bend them a little bit, um, so you can have a little like modicums of agency here or there. But to say that anyone is ever purely an agent in a in an obviously mediated space like a game and then in more subtly mediated spaces in real life i don't i think that's that's a, a little bit of part of a capitalist fantasy um mm-hmm. but I, a, a hyper individualist fantasy but i don't think it's it's really I, I don't think it really reflects reality very well um no no i mean me and jackson were just discussing this this morning about 80 days mm-hmm. um do you want to elaborate the argument, Jackson, that brought this up? I've com- what if the idea, oh, like we-, we, there was criticism of eighty days that it's a game in which part of like there was a presumed problem that you couldn't see all the content in it, mm-hmm. um, and how that is this. I, th- I think it's a very like violent selfishness to apply to a game like that, which is defined by your inability to be all things to all people at all times, right? Like, you're in this framework where you have these demands and you have these limits in this very, like, strict structure, but that structure reinforces, like, this character's role in this world and you playing that character. Mm-hmm. And you can be expressive within that framework, but the, the, like, the idea that all choices should be open to you or can be open to you, I think implies a lot of, uh, like superiority over a game system that, yeah. like, a, and- a lot of players have that, that doesn't seem fair to the game or its creator like that's not respectful to say i deserve to see all of what you have here mm-hmm. and to be fair this came out of me listening to justice points uh who it's a great podcast you should listen to them uh who they played 80 days the start of it and the way it's you have to make these choices and won't be able to see everything system interacted like gave them anxiety and they shut down they didn't play that much mm-hmm. uh whereas i think 80 days is about the rejection of the idea of that mattering ultimately when you see it through but the people talking about it on the podcast were aware that this value came from it being indoctrinated and put forward by other games and isn't fair at all like they weren't saying that was a legit legit criticism they were saying this is my reaction to it and it comes from this larger space uh, whereas this game denies values that are so often repeated in games and not knowing how to react to that. Right. Because it is, it's different. It approaches it from a different ideology and how it considers your time. Yeah. Um, something that I was talking about with, with Elle Rhodes the other day about like the nature of criticism itself. Because um, I was trying to get to this idea of like criticism as a skill is a set of very, very simple actions that most people do organically. They just aren't that like self-aware. And a critic is hyper self-aware and like actually tries to like, um, like refine those skills consciously. Um, but all those skills really are is like observation, description, and comparison. Um, and one of the things that he brought up that I thought was really interesting was, um, this idea that as a critic, um, 
sometimes you run into a problem or something you don't like or don't understand and you have a visceral reaction to it. Um, and you want to, you want to make an external excuse that, you know, this is, this, this is bad because it doesn't fit into a certain framework or whatever, or it's not working formally, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever kind of systematic or structural or formal excuse you want to make for it. Um, this is externally objectively bad is basically, um, and, and it has nothing to do with me or my biases, uh, is, mm-hmm. is kind of the underlying assumption. Yeah. And part of a critic is being able to recognize and work through when you don't understand or dislike something for some, for some, uh, something to do with some, uh, personal ideological bias. And you have to be able to recognize that and understand when your reaction is personal and when it's coming from a more, um, critically distanced, haha, <laughs> uh, place. Um, I, I would even go so far as to say that a critic's job is to seek out those experiences. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to, I think as a critic, you're going to run into them anyway. You just have to be, you have to be honest about yourself, but when you run into them and, and to be honest, uh, with your, with your audience too. Like, mm-hmm. I ran into this issue I didn't understand or I didn't like, and it took me a really long time to come, to come to terms with what I was actually engaging with and to come up with a language to describe what I actually experienced. Yeah, I think it's okay as a critic to say that you have difficulty with a piece or that you're unsure of your stance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a few games like that where it's like, um, I don't, I feel like this is interesting, but I don't really know what to say. <laughs> like, I run into mm-hmm. that a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I might put on a posture of like, oh, I totally get all like those weird art games. Like, I totally, but no, part of what's, part of why I like them so much is actually because there's so much mystery. Like, I don't always get them. I don't always understand what I'm looking at. And that's part of the fun. Uh, is, you know, that it challenges my assumptions and, and, and my, my, sometimes my convictions and my, my sense of convention, my expectations. Uh, and sometimes I run into something. It's very rare now that I'll run into a game that I don't like for interesting reasons. Um, mm-hmm. which is why I tend to focus more on games I like. I mean, yeah. we had a we had a long discussion of, about your most recent game because I kind of didn't like it, but for reasons I think had more to do with my presumptions. Mm-hmm. And we talked through that, and I thought that was a great talk. Like, it, I understood your stance better, and I appreciate the game more. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like I disliked. I, not that I thought the game was bad, but it like felt made me very uncomfortable, and I reacted kind of strongly to it. Mm. One of the ideas that I think is, inc- well, I personally think is very important in criticism and want to carry this going forward is that I see this idea a lot that, uh, you should attempt to reject, like, yourself at, like, you should attempt to reject those personal biases or personal reactions that come from places within you rather than within the work because they don't tell you anything about the work. But, I see that as completely the opposite way is that you shouldn't reject them. You should be very honest about them and upfront about why this thing turns you off or on or exactly, you know. But you should be honest and always bring all your flaws to the game in the same way you'd want to bring the, the game's, like, scrutiny to you. I think there was one line I, in that last piece I wrote that I think that summed it up really well was I, I want criticism where like the games and your flaws and jagged edges bump against each other and meaning pours out of that friction like that's the criticism that i really like the most i think and it's something i think is really valuable mm-hmm. well i mean when i saw i like i appreciated the little blurb you made about my game because 
you know, it's it's nice to have people writing about your game at all. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's weird and and unusual for me. And you know, that's I think that's why I'm so I have so much sympathy for uh, other small games people because I know what it's like. You know, what that yeah. that little strange feeling of recognition that you're not used to. So I try to give that to other people. Um, yeah, but. You know, that being said, I mean, when I, when I, when I saw that, like, you, Matt, didn't like the game, it wasn't so much, I wasn't curious about you not liking it, like, that's fine, I don't really, that's fine, but, um, it was more that you said it was, like, uh, more of a, the difference between a top and a bottom, and I was just really curious what you meant by that, because I had my own, like, point of view going into, and we, we clarified it later on Twitter, and it was actually a really interesting conversation, but, um, like, for me, I was talking to Catherine Cross about it, who also wrote about it, um, comparing it to Bayonetta. And, I mean, almost everyone who linked that piece cared way more about the fact that it was about Bayonetta than my game. But I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. Um, not to be bitter or anything. I don't no, it was it was a great piece, and the stuff said about your game was great. As uh, we're both uh, big Bayonetta fans, we're also big Lana Polanski porn game fans here. Oh. So, <laughs> Thank you. Well, I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, she mentioned when she was talking to me about the game, uh, before the piece went up was this idea that it's like you're, you're topping from the bottom, mm-hmm. which I thought, yeah, that's kind of what the, the idea was that, yeah. uh, cause you mentioned something we were having a conversation that, that there's like a, a sort of, um, kind of media gut reaction with a game like this where the whole point of the game spoilers is to break the computer. Yeah. And like that's the experience. But um there's that 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 visceral kind of fear if you're in the position of actually meeting out the pain that you might go too far. And yeah. that's why it was really important for me to have that the the character that is the sub guide the action mm-hmm. because it was permanent consent the entire time. Yeah. And like, while that, when you explain that, that makes perfect sense to me. Like my gut reaction in the moment was, oh, this is like, I want the option to abort here because this feels like I'm doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's, that was really a funny reaction for me that a lot of people, it wasn't that a lot of people thought they were doing something wrong. They just assumed that the game was broken. And they're like, do you realize that there are all these like Mac broken macros? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I've I've I've, I've, I've made enough fine stuff to know that that stuff you don't do accidentally. Yeah, yeah, I saw it when I tested it. Like, what do you mm-hmm. think? Also, the game is called Error Four Hundred Four. Yep. Did you not think that at some point there would be like a an error like, a, like an error of some mm-hmm. kind? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you get you get to that point where you're literally the only thing you can do is obliterate all the text by hovering over it. Yeah. And like every action taken there, like to me was like this really painful act. Yeah. Like even if the game is encouraging you to do it, like I feel like it's some sort of like it's it's a I, I know that it's a consenting violation, but it still feels like a violation to me. Well that's one of the things that I wanted to get at too, is this idea that a lot of porn games that are BDSM always take it from the point of view of the Dom. Always, mm-hmm. always. So you never really feel like there's anything at stake because you're always in the relative position of not getting hurt. Um, mm-hmm. and there, and you're always get, I mean, even in the really, really good ones where you're given immediate, uh, enthusiastic consent by the, uh, AI sub, like you're still at a relative distance from what that sub is experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I was, 
I like those games a lot. I mean, I, I really like Consensual Torture Simulator, and I like Hurt Me Plenty, and I mean, I like those games. I do, but I don't relate to them as much. Mm-hmm. They don't really, mm-hmm. they don't really capture the experience for my side of things. And I wanted a game where people kind of came away like not just engaging with a sub, but actually understanding what it feels like. Mm-hmm. That that's what was my reaction is like, I I felt like. I was second person playing as the computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's how I was reading it emotionally, and it's just transmitting what that feels like and the uh, emotions and interplay there. Whereas Matt took it as okay, I am playing uh, thoroughly as the the person in control, and I'm not actually seeing any of the boundaries. I'm just seeing this person's in a monologue and or this computer's in a monologue and their desires to just go as far as possible. Yeah. And that's impossible to mediate when you're coming at it from that approach. But for me, I was like, yep, mm-hmm, good. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's that's also part of why I'm like, I, I wanted to make it a, a computer, first of all, for a very good reason. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't feel as comfortable if it was like a flesh and bone person. Like, no. even as somebody who is, you know, empathetic to the desires of the subby type, I mean, I have limits. We all have limits. So sure. I, I wanted to create a system where, a, a personality where those uh, those limits could be kind of um, surpassed in a fantasy space in a way that yeah. was still safe. You can abstract of, them and project upon it yeah. your own limits. And to work out kind of, yeah. yeah, to work out sort of some of like Bataille's idea about like ritual self-sacrifice in the context of art, which is a whole other yeah. thing that I won't go into. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, he has some good stuff about like, you know, in a secular age where people aren't like, like sacrificing themselves to gods anymore, um, like art can kind of take the place of that need, that social need to kind of obliterate the self as a way to reconstruct one's own identity. Um, often from a, with a new set of perspectives at the end of it. That's kind of what art helps you do. Um, and so, and he was also in like some weird death cult at some point in France. So he was, he was an interesting guy. Uh, and I wouldn't advocate living his lifestyle, but he had some good ideas. <laughs> About art, at, at least. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I wanted, I wanted to kind of have a guided experience where what you, what you are kind of enacting and having done to this character is something that you get to feel yourself in a way. Like, it's painful yes. and, and, and strenuous for a reason. <laughs> It's painful and strenuous because, yeah, it is. But it's also, I mean, it also should be kind of mysterious and fun and interesting and, you know, a little daring, too. Like, I also wanted it to to surprise the player when that happened a little bit. Not so much that they would be like, oh, is this broken? But to go, oh, you know, I didn't know that that would happen. You know, I didn't yeah, I didn't know that one thing would lead to the, another. The page broke and I was like, ah, oh, no, yeah, mm-hmm, I get it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Whereas I got it, but was kind of horrified. (laughs) That's fine. Like, I think it's great that that game could, like, make that happen in me. Yeah. Like, that's a testament to the game being effective at what it does. Well, I mean, it's kind of telling you who you are, though, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you you see things from my side of the experience, but it's not for you. 
Yeah. And you know that and now. That's, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> fine. Like, I, I like that about it. Like yeah. I said, like, the fact that I, my reaction was like a negative one, I think is like, I, I enjoy that. Cause I so rarely get, like you said, so rarely dislike a game for interesting reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't happen to me that often. Whenever I, I dislike a game, it's always for the same reasons that I can articulate over and over and over again. And it, it gets to the point where, you know, I can write two sentences about a game and it kind of sums up how I feel. And I don't like mm. that. Um, it's not good for me as a critic. I can't really go into anything. I can't really say anything substantial. I might as well just point you to something else, like other people who are writing about this, or stuff that's already been said, that I've said or other people have said. Because I'm just I'm just broken record. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I want to... I want to engage with and also make games. I don't necessarily want people to dislike them. That's not that's not my goal. But I definitely. No, I, I mean, it's not it's not as if like I really like Super Moons. I really liked your. Uh, yeah, you I don't did know like the Super- title, the toilet poetry game. <laughs> oh you yeah, Latronalia. Yes, that was a great game. Also, thank you. I don't. You know what? I don't know hmm. of anyone who's actually played that except you. Well, it was good. I love that zine. I've done an embarrassing amount of gaming on a toilet in my lifetime. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. That. Well, that's how I felt. That's how that's how we all felt when we put together the zine. Is like, you know what? There's a really strong relationship between like the vulnerability of being on a toilet and like needing to distract yourself for ten minutes. And games do that a lot. Like, games, I mean, I still read or whatever, but if we're gonna go into it, we're gonna yeah, talk about no, it. No, I understand. I, yeah, I also do, you know, I have a Kindle and a 3DS. I could just pick whichever I'm in the mood for. Yeah. And I think they both basically serve the same functions. Like, I'm not gonna exceptionalize games here and be like, oh, but they take you into a magical world when you're on the no. toilet. Like, no, like, reading does that too. Yeah. Uh, it's, it provides the same sort of escape. Um, but you know, it's, to, I, I'm really interested in, in like, um, accounts of gaming that implicate a sense of personal vulnerability. And, like, mm. Toilet mm-hmm. is a really good site for that. Mm. Like, how many horror films have scenes where someone gets owned while sitting on a toilet? Yeah. Think about that. And it's, and it was also especially weird and funny for me because toilets are just not a thing in a lot of games. Like, in some games, they, they, they feature, like, in The Sims, um, where a lot of the activity that you're engaging with is, like, domestic stuff. So bodily functions are a part of that. It makes sense. But in most games, it's like, you know, like, Duke Nukem, if he has to pee, it's, like, part of a cutscene. It's, like, meant to be funny or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's, like, not... Like, he doesn't have to stop in the middle of a mission and be like, oh, wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta go. You know? Like, that mm-hmm. doesn't happen. Like, well, the the only times it comes up are either in like really hard sims that have put that in mm-hmm. as part of their simulation, or just as a joke because bodily functions, ha ha. Yeah, exactly. No one actually engages with that part of physical humanity, honestly, in games. Well, no, I mean it's like it's it's a lot of. I think it has to do with like the power fantasy itself that you have you absent the things that make people vulnerable and make people human and gross. Uh, like we yeah. we absent the things that make us kind of not like ourselves. And video games are like a big site for, you know, dehumanizing yourself as much as possible to be, just like, to just kind of wrap your ego around a, fe- a, a kind of a illusory feeling of empowerment, which is something that, like, we don't even have to, like, explain that. Everyone gets that. 
Um, yeah, I, th- I think I could sum it up by like in video games, you will, like especially the big power fantasies, they'll go in as much as possible to make this big testosterone mm-hmm. masculine power fantasy, but you will never once see a penis. Yeah, like, you see lots of boobs, <laughs> lots and see lots, lots of boobs, but you'll never. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you'll never actually like see the thing that everything is implicating. And for that matter, yeah, you won't it, see a vagina for what it's worth. Nope. You won't. Nope. It's all. It's all very vanilla. Yeah. It's all very north and, of the equator. And that comes down to it, just this idea of all this the sexual fan- power fantasy in this dehumanized way that, that, as soon as you engage with the realities of it, falls down in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, you won't see certain, but it's not even like, like, for me, like a lot of the problems with sexuality in games, it doesn't even come down to a lack of visuals. Like, it's not even about not no. seeing the sex parts. Mm-hmm. Cause, I mean, all I think of, I figure a lot of that is like, to not be rated X. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, a lot of it is also, it's just, there's no frank depiction of like, actual, like, sexual desire or intimacy. It's no. as sex is itself a, a acquisition of power, and it's always from the same perspective, always, always. That's a lot of the problem with sex is it it, it lacks a human touch, like most things. Yeah. So that's why I kind of try to even even games about like like horny computers. I try to actually give them a more of a a feeling of humanity. Uh, mm-hmm. as, as I attempt to anyway. And I seek out games that also kind of do that. Like, I mean, even even small power fantasy games, I think, are, are capable of having heart. You know, I think Hurt yeah. Me Plenty is an, is an example of that. Mm-hmm. It's clearly a highly mediated fantasy space uh, where you have significant power over this individual, um, but it's also a relatively safe, consensual space um, where the character itself is very expressive, and he declares what he wants. Uh, and there, as you mentioned in the full version, there's a consequence for contravening um, his, his boundaries. Mm-hmm. So, you don't, you don't really kind of, it's not as, it, 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 in a lot of games, the, there are boundaries, but they aren't explicitly stated. And a lot of the times you can do stuff, like the, the system will allow you to kind of subtly do things, um, in a way that isn't communicated, frankly, that um, are ex- extremely... I don't want to use the word problematic, but, you know, if you were to try this on a real person, it might not work out for you or mm-hmm. them. You know, uh, it'll it'll make certain assumptions about sex and sexual desire and power um, without cleanly, explicitly stating what a character wants or needs from you. Um the system will just kind of encourage you or kind of, like, guide you to doing things. I think the systems yeah. in these games themselves are are dishonest and non-consensual because they often um, kind of uh, reassert certain ideas for the player. They ask the player to do things that they don't even really realize they're doing. A good example yeah. of this would be, like, free-to-play games kind of um, cajoling people into spending more money than they might otherwise, if it were more, uh, if if the if the cost of what they were doing were more explicitly stated to them. Honesty is 
a thing like things actually presenting themselves honestly is ref- honestly is refreshing yeah. and i wish it wasn't just one thing to be say hey this is what i am and here's what i offer and then you come as honestly to the game and a th- meaning happens i guess i don't know well a lot of that is you know a lot of that like non-consensual design it's like it's what you would call like dark design or whatever evil design getting getting mm-hmm. people um kind of convincing people or manipulating people into doing things that they might not consent to do otherwise. Or getting people to, I guess in this case, kind of imbibe ideas about yeah. society or about systems or whatever that um, under normal circumstances they might recognize as faulty in some way, but to propagandize those things to them and to get them to kind of um, consume them un- uncritically. I yes. think that's a violation of someone's boundaries for sure. And lots of games yeah. do this. So that's why, I mean, to have a game where you break a computer, but the computer is explicitly telling you the entire time that, yes, this is what I want, I feel like if you have a, a strong reaction to that, you know, in a lot of circumstances, um, if the ga- if the games that were lying to you about these things were more honest about them, you might have just as strong a reaction, but they don't give you the opportunity to do that. Hello there, everybody. Matt here. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast so far. I promise that the names and articles and whatnot all die down a bit as we get into the second segment and talk about our Game Club game. But uh, please, once again, check out the reading list on abnormalnothing.com. It is exhaustive. Me and Jackson spent a long time tracking down everything referenced there. Uh, and it's a wealth of information. Uh, as usual, check out the site for writing. Jackson's doing a piece on all games that's going up every week, just small uh, capsule impressions of things. I have a piece going up the Monday after this podcast goes live, so if you're listening after the day it came out, it's probably already up about uh, Ocarina of Time and character motivation. Yes, I know. Jackson's writing about the art games, and I'm writing about Ocarina of Time of all things, but uh, that's the way it goes, I guess. Um, once again, check out the YouTube channel. We have videos up there. We plug it at the end. But uh, right now, my Captain Toad Let's Play is halfway through. And uh, coming soon will be Jackson playing Alan Wake's American Nightmare, which I am dying to see because I'm sure it's ridiculous. Once again, rate and review us. We've gotten two reviews uh, since uh, I bought, never bothered to check, apparently. And thank you to those people. Uh, join in. Rate us five stars. Tell us what you like. Email us in private about what you don't, please. Uh, don't put it in the review. We're awesome, as far as anyone who hasn't listened is concerned, right? Right? Okay, let's just keep that between you and me. Come back in a couple weeks as we talk about Atelier Rorona, assuming that everybody else has played it. Uh, I'm also not done with it. I don't know why I'm casting dispersions upon my castmates. Uh, and then at the end of February, we'll be talking about Yakuza 3, which we... Uh, We'll announce later, but I'm spoiling it now. I don't even care. All right, let's get back into the actual podcast. Thanks.
so part of having guests on the podcast was getting uh, other people to bring in game selections for our game club. And uh, Lana, you picked maybe the most opposite to all the games that we've ever picked so far mm-hmm. on this uh, podcast by uh, picking Offline by uh, Paul Clarissu, uh, yeah. which... I, I think the shortest game that we've picked so far for this is about five hours long. So good job uh, making us yeah. be uh, responsible and stop playing retail games as much as we do. Yeah. That was a recent one that uh, Zolani... Zolani's really good for bringing this stuff to my attention. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, he he brought Paul Clarissou to my attention, who's one of the handful of really cool indie French developers. Um there, there's like a like a pool of them that are all doing really interesting things, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, this this was a neat one. I thought the uh, the I, uh, the way that it implies depth. I mean, we'll get into it after, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it implies depth in a really interesting way. Uh, just the visual framing, I thought was really really interesting. So, okay, um, Jackson, do you want to set up what the game is? I'll let you do that. Okay, Offline is a game where you are in a train, and that's kind of it, but it's this space for you to click on buttons, like, in a very removed way, click on buttons and have effects, but it's just this very dreamlike quality as you exist in this tunnel, and it kind of reveals its secrets to you in this place you can just be. Uh I mean, is that a good? Sure. Yeah. I, I think it's important to what note you... that the actual like structure mm-hmm. is you standing in the cockpit of an underground rail train, and you yeah. have all of the controls in front of you, yeah. and pretty much all of them are actually things you can touch and interact with. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what 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 I one of the things there are a few things uh, I should hope um, about this game, but one of the things that really stood out to me is the fact that yeah, you have all of this access to like the the whole control board um, is at your disposal, but you don't know what anything does. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't really feel like you're in very much control. <laughs> like you can click on buttons, like you're, uh, you know, presumably you're the conductor. Mm-hmm. But it's more like, oh, you're like a kid and you like wandered into the train. And you're like in the cockpit and the- you don't really know what anything does. The thing that it reminds me most of is playing like a simulator game when you're mm-hmm. too lazy or too like disinterested to read the manual. And you just start a, like a flight simulator, or even like train simulator, and you're suddenly presented with all of these controls and no idea how any of them work. And mm. even your mouse over tooltips don't help you because it's like, here's a bunch of acronyms for something. I don't know what this means. And you yeah. just fiddle around and see what happens. The interesting thing is that I like most of the buttons on this are connected to concrete train functions, but yeah. also to abstract, almost visualizer-esque well, that's, uh, um, expressions. Yeah. That's the really important thing with a lot of abstract art, especially when it's presented in um, the context of, of like a visual narrative, like a game. Mm-hmm. Um, is a lot of what it'll do, a lot of what a lot of abstract art kind of does, even when it gets really, really weird, is still kind of rooted in something kind of familiar, vaguely figurative. Um, so you can kind of like connect it to something real. Like a lot of glitch art does this. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, it's clearly corrupted, but in a very deliberate, specific way, and you can kind of make out an idea of what it's what the image originally was. Um, so it kind of 
does this thing where it takes it takes a familiar like banal object and then kind of subverts it or converts it into some sort of new meaning by adding something completely foreign and weird to it mm-hmm. um, and kind of making it uncanny. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why like when people complain about the uncanny valley, I'm like, no, there's so much fertile ground here for you to do so many interesting things. And all you have to do is stylize it properly. Uh, it's not that yeah. hard. <laughs> it's also a really good case for visual storytelling, I think. It's something that implies a lot of things without um, making any declarative statements. It's open-ended. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like you can you can just keep clicking on buttons forever. Like it won't stop. Like it'll just keep going. Yeah. Even, like a- even the like end point, which is if you maximize the train speed, you crash. Yeah, oh, yeah, just, cool. Just loops you back. Yeah, it just loops you back. You can just keep going and doing it. Um, and, like, one of the things, too, that I really like is the way that it frames um, dimensionality. So, like, it starts out and you're in this, you're, you're in this sort of, like, limited kind of, it looks, it looks like, like a mock 3D space. Like, the background is still 2D. The, yeah, there, um, there is this infamously infuriating, underground maze puzzle in mist that this reminds me of where you're navigating this small like tunnel you're in these tunnels and you're in this small train and you're navigating by sounds but you just rotate around these like pre-rendered corridors that all look exactly the same over and over again oh my god and that's what this reminds me of that would make me so angry it is (laughs) (laughs) uh you know what? I feel like I'm too young for Mist. Like I missed it. I you know? so ha. So when I was <laughs> <laughs> when I was oh, young, God. I didn't. I was a console gamer. I didn't have a PC until I was way older. And Mist to me was like this strange idea of like an adult game. Like it wasn't a game for like mm-hmm. I was too young to actually play. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I wasn't ready for it. And then once we eventually got a computer, like I got one of those Mist like. 10th anniversary, like masterpiece editions, whatever, and finally sat down and played it. And that thing stuck with me in that it was a thing that I felt I had to aspire to. Mm-hmm. Even though I understand that it comes out of like the adventure game mode and it has a lot of the problems of adventure games in the 90s where a lot of the solutions are really obtuse and you literally have to carry a note, like have a notebook by your side to write down all of the dumb clues that are way too obscure for their own good. Oh man, I love that there there is a, a definitely a, a certain generation, I think mostly male gamers who were really into IF mm-hmm. at one point in like yeah. the in like the late eighties, mm-hmm. like the early nineties, like before the graphics card became a thing. Yeah. Um and they like I saw like a documentary about this, and like these dudes have like binders and binders full of notes and maps that they drew yeah. from their like like from playing like like Whatever those games like Zork or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's I, and I, I have no tolerance for IF. Like, I just can't parse it in any meaningful way. Well, that's why, like, with Twine, like, people connected to IF, but I'm like, it doesn't have a parser. Yeah, the parser so, is the thing that makes it impossible for me to engage yeah. with. Uh, so, like, for me, like, Twine is more about, like, it's more a linking passages, which means that pace is very strongly mediated by the system, mm-hmm. which means that a lot of the mystery and joy for me comes from the player not knowing what's going to happen as a result of them clicking on a thing. Yeah. Um, which means, for me, I like to go with more obscure or more surreal. Like, if I click on this, like, I'm not sure. There's all definitely a logic here of, like, why one thing leads to another. Mm-hmm. But part of the the 
second order levels of play is doing the mental work of figuring out why she chose to do that. So I, I use more, uh, I borrow more from poetics mm-hmm. than I do from like adventure storytelling. That's really interesting to me because I have a hard time not thinking about twine in like a very strict narrative authored form. I use it as a tool mostly to make digital poems. Mm-hmm. It's most of my stuff with it. Um, so offline, uh, yeah. you're talking about uh, dimensionality. Yeah. So, okay. Um, <laughs> so like it puts you in this like box and it's like the, like the, I, I, I don't know what the resolution is itself, but it's, it's relatively small. I don't know if it's like four by three or whatever, like the aspect ratio is, but it's small. Yeah, the um, main screen I think is like four by three. Yeah, it's like four by three. Um, and so it makes you feel really confined. And then you start clicking on buttons and they do things and you start to see like colors emerge and shapes emerge from around you. And so it starts to imply a little bit of, um, like what would be like, a, I guess like a Z axis. So mm-hmm. it implies a kind of a, a depth. Um, and then when you finally get the train moving, um, you know, it doesn't side scroll, it starts going inwards. So that Z axis comes back. Mm-hmm. So you can find, um, X and Y is very, it's very confined to this very small space and then things start moving in. So it implies kind of cavernousness. Uh, like it's, it has like a kind of like a cave feeling to it. Mm-hmm. it. It has like a, it feels like it has more of an interior kind of quality than, like, scrolling from one side to another. So it, it it fundamentally changes the way the game feels mm-hmm. than if you were moving around the inside of the box. One of the things I, I like about that dimensionality is some of it feels very illusory. Mm-hmm. Like, you have, on your left-hand side, you have the window control, left and right windows. Mm-hmm. And you can see them because of the weird perspective of the, like, train yeah. And when you open them, you get the sounds of the wind outside, but you don't actually see any, like, the windows don't actually move. Like, they're non-operative right. in the framework. But you get this sense of, like, when I open them, I feel the air in, like, a real, like, a more real way, like, personally than I would closed, even though the presentation hasn't changed at all. It's just the sound cue. Yeah, no, you get sound cues, you get, and, like, the, a lot of the sound cues, cues are kind of deep, so and they kind of echo. Mm-hmm. Um, you get, like, you get phantom, like, there's, like, one where it's, like, phantom hands popping out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it sort of implies, uh, but, but not only does it imply kind of depth, it's also a fixed camera perspective, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure. Yeah. So, it's the camera moving you into, uh, the train, like, the, the train track, into the train tunnel, uh, but you kind of just sit there and watch it. Mm-hmm. So, I thought that was a, a, another really interesting touch, that there's, um... At the at one sense you're on a moving train, on the other sense you're completely confined to the inside of the moving train from one perspective. Yeah, and one of the one of the uh, main screen you have like a camera button, like a, a camera console and a bunch of buttons. One of them is just behind the player, and you're just this black shape mm-hmm. standing in the cockpit, so you can see behind you. But there's yeah. no sense of like that space behind you outside of that picture. But it is just it just presents you standing there, this figure as ghostly as the things that yeah. you see outside the train. Yeah, like it does something that in other art would be called mise en abîme, which it basically just sort of implies um like picture in a picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So like like there's a famous Velasquez painting where you have like. Um, 
the the figures in the foreground and then there's like an, a mirror that's reflecting off them so it's like what they're doing is reflected in the mirror and then that's reflected and that's reflected uh so that that would be like mizuna bim um and the abim is it it it, it translates to abyss so I feel like that's also kind of like a provocative way of like framing it as like going into an abyss, going into a scary dark place. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's a there's a feeling of uh, because you're controlling the camera more than the character itself. There's also a sense of constriction. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, if you were say if you were co- going to um, describe this as a horror game, um, you get the fear paralysis followed by or as a result of um going into an abyss going into you know that a fo- like a, a sense of claustrophobia mm-hmm. as a result of of going through this the scary train tunnel and then you click on things and like it seems haunted because like you have scary shit that pops out when you click buttons um but it's also like weirdly sublime like it's scary, but it's also really chill. <laughs> One of the things I was going to say is, even if there were no ghosts, I wouldn't call it a horror game, but I'd call it a haunted game. Yeah, yeah. Where just yeah. the desolation of these train tunnels and these lights that, like, end up blur... Like, when you turn on the, like, running lights along the sides and the top, they end up blurring into these, like, neon streaks that yeah, just blow and it, past you. And it has this kind of, like, weird, like, drugged out... I love drugged out like games that remind me of drugs make me really happy (laughs) Uh, but like uh like kind of um like rave kind of feeling Mm. like neon lights and weird sounds and like if you've ever been to like a show like i get I, i like i get claustrophobia it's not like a fear though i get like um physiological systems from being confined because i'm i'm relatively short um so if I'm in uh like a confined space with not a lot of air, I can very easily pass out. Mm-hmm. So that's what that kind of reminds me of. Um, like going to a, a concert that was packed wall to wall and there was like like a light show that was very close like the proximity to my face was really re- really close so I had lights in my face the entire time and I thought I was going to pass out and I was like hallucinating. It was horrible. The the thing this remind actually reminds me of is uh driving in the very very late hours of the night/early slash early morning. Mm-hmm. Where you're you're in this kind of state of like you don't want to fall asleep, but you're tired and you feel kind of unreal. And mm-hmm. like this is the thing that Glitch Hikers captures like explicitly, but I think it's implied yeah. and offline. Where I was just gonna say, yeah, yeah, um, where the sense of reality is only what you can make of it by your own perception. Mm-hmm. And you, even though you're in, you're just like going from point A to point B, like it feels timeless. And both like totally desolate and really intimate. Well, yeah. When I played it, I felt this extreme sense of escape from every single new sensory input they found because it starts off and you're incredibly confined. You're just a person in a box, and as you click each button and make a new thing happen and go faster and faster, this thing that was originally you, this confined claustrophobic space, becomes incredibly freeing and serene and with like as the lights go past and the lights on the other side and then the hands and then the light comes towards you it's just uh this sense that you're no longer alone 
that you feel as more things happen and you have an effect on the world around you and the world has an effect on you. Mm-hmm. So I consider this game like really optimistic in terms of how it like I I understand that it's haunting and I agree with that but it was kind of this beautiful thing as I got yeah. to have more things in this world and like the tagline for it is keep dreaming which I think is fair enough because you don't see your hands at any point like mm-hmm. there is a easy read of this where none of this is happening and you are just a person sitting in a box who can't do anything and you're just dreaming about all the things you want to see right uh, I, I, and the disconnect that there's actually no representation of you in this world outside of in these screens that you see yourself is incredibly important to how it gave that sense of escape when you just barrel down that tunnel and the movement just increases it's great yeah no that's really sweet and it's like one of the things that I, I like to like if you were going to make like a meta argument for this about games about like confinement yeah. um this idea of like everything in a game is basically it's an illusory virtual space and it's an, an, mm-hmm. an, an kind of an explicitness to that and that you don't really get to experience in other art forms, which might be one of the things about games that makes them a little bit different. Um, is they're, they're essentially hyper real objects. They're, they're yeah. reproductive spaces. They're reproductions of spaces. Um, where the other, other kind of art forms are, are in themselves, you know, these very clearly artificial constructs that you kind of you can't inhabit in quite the same way. Um, whereas in a game space, things happen and they respond, and so you can you can uh, convince yourself of some real consequence to what you're doing. Um, and what these ga- these games kind of make the like the meta argument that like no, I mean essentially they're all kind of these existential arguments that are in in and of themselves sort of like these empty virtual ones and zero boxes. Um, mm. But within them, you know, there's a dialogue taking place and there's, like any other art form, you know, uh, creation of meeting taking place going on between the mediation of the, the player actor um, and what the game itself is offering them in terms of the parameters of it, the aesthetics of it, whatever. Uh, and I feel like uh, the difference between something like Offline and Glitch Hikers are both making a very simil- similar argument um in terms of that, but one is making the argument for it through visual language primarily, and the other is doing that with visual language, but also with like actual scripting. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both do a really good job of it in their own way. Mm-hmm. I want to talk briefly, briefly about Night Tune. I don't know if you played this, Lana. I don't it, think I have. It's uh, it's a newish. It says 2015 on the site, so I assume it's relatively recent. Uh, game by Paul that is. You're just in a car, like a passenger seat of a car at night, mm-hmm. and there's just lights going on outside, and you can touch the radio, and it pulls up a browser, or a, like a file browser, we could load your own MP3s in. But then once you do that, your only other option is to turn off the overhead light, and when that happens, your character kind of, like, lolls back in their chair, and you just see the, like, lights outside your car go past as, like, everything else fades around you, and all you do is, like, blink Every once in a while. Cool. Um, capturing, like, really explicitly that feel of driving late at night. Um, the thing that I thought was interesting between that and offline is Night Tune is, like, a fully passive experience outside of picking your own music. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's something about offline's array of controls that it gives you that evokes something like uh, be, become a great artist in 10 seconds. Where... Mm-hmm. 
experientially, like, if you just get in the groove of messing with it, you can kind of have these moments where, you know, I have the blue lights and then I have the red lights and now here's the ghost along the side because I picked up the phone. You can kind of create almost like this visualizer, like, because there's no music, but there's like a soundscape. You can have this sequence of vi- like visual input that is like pleasing and repetitive. You can, I, I like DJ a ghost story, I guess, if you mm-hmm. want to give it a ridiculous term, but like, it feels that way to me. Like I enjoyed, like I went back to this multiple times in the times we've been playing with it and I just go down and, you know, summon the ghost with the hands that crawl up the side of the window. And then if I get creeped out, I hit the weird green spiral laser and I feel like all the ghosts are gone. Uh, yeah. just like it was very comforting to me to hit that button as like an escape when it felt a little creepier than it normally does. Yeah. And I liked that it gave you these explicit, like it almost crafts like an artistic piece in your actions in the space. I mean, it should, right? Yeah. Like, that's what, I mean, whether it's, that's why I get really like annoyed when people talk about storytelling as though it's all just narrative, like it's all just narratology. Mm-hmm. Like, you, that's one of the, the my, my gripes I have with formalists. Is like you realize that narratology is itself a tiny member of the the vast field of formalism. Narratology is a formalist practice, which so newsflash. Uh, yeah. Um, but but that like like the critique of storytelling um, and and like the craft of storytelling goes goes so far beyond just creating a narrative arc. Um, it's also about, like, um, mise-en-scene, and it's about character, and it's about, um, like, symbols, be they text or visual. Well, I mean, it's all text, but script or visual. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, storytelling is as much about, um, creating a space, um, that, that has implications, um, and, and crafting an experience around those implications, than just, you know, like, an a narrative arc that you can plot on a graph. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to ma- mention what you said about the, its musicality, this game, because uh, I feel in some ways it's this very... It's, it's The board of dials is very similar to an instrument because I remember being, like, four years old, or still now because I'm an incredibly musical person just, like, innately... Uh, a train is this rhythmic thing and it goes, it goes through routines. It has a pulse. It has a beat and you are bringing in tracks and you're making noises and you're experimenting with the soundscape. Uh, and I think more than visually, the a way you can craft a song, quote unquote, many quotes out of the tools you have available to you and you can completely transform the soundscape that has a constant pulse, but everything else yeah. is you can bring in things in and out is this sense of freedom and self-expression that I, I really took that away from it, which is definitely me bringing my, I'm a drummer and that is built into me, this sense of rhythm. But that's that's cool. one of the things that I really took away from it. Well, that's why offline reminded me so much of a concert experience. Yeah. Or like a, mm-hmm. like a, in my case, uh, one that didn't exactly go very well for me, but uh, and it has like, yeah, it has musicality. Like I, I played it and I was sort of reminded of Slave of God a little bit. Like I was reminded of a rave, a concert, a music video, um, with a lot of like bright, like a, like a, like a weird, angry, bright new wave music video or so, of some kind, you know, like, like a weird, yeah. yeah, like tuxedo moon kind of video. 
there was uh, there was one time I actually did pass out at a concert, and like a flying was similar to that. Like, I, embarrassing story. I when I was like sixteen, I passed out at a Billy Talent gig. Oh no! Uh, and yeah, I know, right? Yeah, uh, and the expe- when you f- when you faint at a concert or you kind of feel yourself going, you do not fall to the ground because there's too many people. So mm-hmm. you're just falling constantly <laughs> until you reach the. You're falling and walking constantly until you reach the back of the room. Yeah. and it's a very similar feeling to heading down this tunnel because you're just feeling the world go past you and you're not really there. Like that's my memory of seeing Billy Talent when I was sixteen. Like, my- <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> oh man, no, yeah. my my experience was a, a Montreal band that I don't think outside of Montreal they're that well known, but they're mm-hmm. called Stars. Uh, nope. And Stars is like they're. Uh, I guess I mean Arcade Fire is the more well known band in terms of like mm-hmm. bands from here. Yeah. But they have that. It's like this kind of like post rock alternative like pop music like ele- electro pop kind of music yeah um and there uh stars is probably more pop than arcade fire is like they're really really poppy um yeah. and they they love like glitter and light shows and stuff and i was at this place called uh the metropolis the metropolis is really small it's really intimate like if you want an intimate like uh kind of concert experience you go to the metropolis and if you want like the big arena you go to the bell center mm. um and I, so th- this show was t- small but they're a locally pretty popular band at least they were at the time so it was packed like hundreds of people in this little space just <laughs> with no nowhere to move nowhere to like if you danced like good job finding room um <laughs> And if you're little, it was like, I could, I could see the stage, but it was like, I had to like hop over heads and like try to watch it. Like, I was there with my, my boyfriend and I remember there's just this dude in the back of us who kept telling us to move up. And we were like, where? Where do you want us to move? Uh, so it was like, it was, there's no space around us. Lights in my face, like a really nice light show, but not for a space that small. Mm-hmm. Like it was blinding. <laughs> It just feels overwhelming and oppressive to your senses, the whole thing. Yeah, and, like, yeah. there was... A, to get to a bar, I had to walk through, like, a hundred people packed in, like, <laughs> sardines to get, like, a bottle of water. Yeah. And I could feel myself going in the, like, like three-quarters of the way through the concert. Just pop music and lights and glitter and no air. And just this... It just confined in a box of glitter. Which is not as fun as it sounds. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound fun. <laughs> And I had to, like, my, I had to have my boyfriend, like, pull me out and, like, walk to the back and get me some water because I thought I was gonna, like, pass out for good. Yeah. It was really, really scary and colorful. Scary and colorful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, that was my experience. Well, yeah, because uh, what I remember about my, my feigning thing uh, in how it relates to offline is that the moment when you think you're gonna go is this, you're aware of how scary it is, but it's a strangely serene moment because yeah. you're just kind of lost. Yeah, you're, yeah, it's, you're so incoherent, and you're so in your own head, like, you, that's like that fear paralysis, like, you can't even articulate exactly what's going on, you're just like, I don't feel so good, yep. uh, and everything just sort of blurs together for a minute, mm-hmm. and you get really lightheaded, too, that's, that's the yeah. other part of the serenity, is you just, you physically feel like you're floating, Yep. and then you fall. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, I mean, you, you, your, the weight of your body comes back at you all at once. Mm-hmm. So that's what it's like to faint. If you've never had that's, that Yeah, experience. that's fainting at a concert story. I've never yeah. fainted, so I, I couldn't tell you. I fainted on a bus once. That was nice. Oh, fun. Yeah. So I, I had, I went to, my college was in the hills and the bus. I hadn't, I guess I had low blood pre- pressure and the air pressure and the bus changed because we, when we got into the hills and I just passed out. <laughs> it was, I, never, I woke up with everyone staring at me. <laughs> were you on the floor and everyone's head was like poking in like that yeah. shot in any film is she dead like that's yeah <laughs> great yeah that was fun that was really awful and but yeah i mean that's yeah i guess i guess that's what that experience that's the, what that game is to me is fainting yes me too that's and the also, thing it taps into also tunnel vision right mm-hmm. yeah. you're literally going through a tunnel like yep. your your vision kind of like blackens to a pinpoint, and all the lights are like on the periphery, but this is like increasing black center you're heading towards. Yeah, that's slowly coming towards you. Yeah, even though you're at the same time being essentially overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah, offline get... and fainting. Yeah, <laughs> and and tunnel vision and lightheadedness, <laughs> blurry vision, and it's yeah, that's that's what it's like. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, sorry, oh, yeah. I'll let you go. You go. No, okay, you go. well, you know, Matthew was uh, worried that we wouldn't have enough to talk about with this game. <laughs> you know, I always worry without cause for the most part. I'm a worry. He does. He does that. That's his. That's his <laughs> mode. I, I I wanted to talk about um to pivot to another one of Paul's game. I want to talk about even the stars for a second. Okay. Uh, which is a something that it does it in a very different way but the way even the stars presents this idea of tangible disconnectedness i guess i don't know how to phrase it but uh this the sound effects when you type things in and even to stars and the way you're looking at a screen within a screen gives you this sense of being in a place but not being able to touch anything or interact any with anything in any mm-hmm. meaningful way and it's a way more peaceful, sad game than offline, but they both have this sense of tangible spaces that you can interact with and play with mm-hmm. that you are never allowed to truly step into. I wouldn't call it a peaceful game at all. Even the stars. It's the, that's you. <laughs> I think that's, it's a, that game is like screaming into a void. Like there's nothing peaceful about it. When, okay, so when I played that, my experience playing Even the Stars is one of my favorite experiences of all time. I played that at EGX for the first time. Uh, and EGX is this just conference of noise and neon and ridiculousness. And I just put on this things and fly around space and type in where I go. And suddenly every, life and death felt okay for a minute. And I just traveled through places, put the numbers in, and saw things. And I was very peaceful, which isn't like me. I'm normally like you. I normally get the desperate yeah, <laughs> existential like, crisis. Even the stars yeah. to me is is a game about like approaching like the relics of like humanity and like in the context of the universe and asking what meaning could be there. And no matter what the answer is, like the answer, I think has to be like it comes from a place of like fear and fury. Like it's not pleasant. Mm. 
Mm. I think I think it comes from this place of like sad acceptance of uh, you inevitability. Can, you can be sad and acceptant. I'm going to be angry and scared. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, the I mean, le- I'm the least sad and acceptant person when it comes to existential stuff usually, but apparently in that moment. And oh, I also wanted to mention that when I played it, the they still had that glitch where yeah. the game doesn't show the end screen. So. My game just went black at some point, and that was it. That gave me no response, and it was one of the most powerful moments in anything. And then I found out later it was a glitch. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, re- I'm reminded a bit of, you know, some of Andy McClure's games. Uh, I find that pull... I mean, I, I, I need to play more of their things, um, but I find that there's a, a tendency with the vi- this kind of visual storytelling to be extremely suggestive. So it'll suggest mm. a certain kind of, um, like, spectrum of... Uh, evocations or kind of uh, like like subtle messages or uh, subtle expressions. So you have like a range of possible interpretations that make sense within the confines, but they're still pretty broad. Like you can look at a game, yeah. like even the stars, and you still get a sense of tragedy, um, and you still get a sense of of basic uh, like fundamental discord. But you can interpret that as sad or angry, um, and both uh, work validly according to what the text is offering. So, yeah. and I find that really, like, this This is, I like this idea that, like, games like, 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 um, Offline or 222AM, which is one of my favorite games ever, or, uh, Curza by Kitty Horshow, the other one's by Albert Lai. Um, I like this idea that we have these games, um, that actually offer narrative subtlety. Um, mm-hmm. that, you know, they show they don't tell. Which is like writing 101. You know, you don't, you you don't hit people over the head with it. And like, Mm. that's, that's a a lot of the problems with games that try to be deep or thematic is they, they're really ham-fisted. Like they, they're trying too hard to be deep. Mm. And then you go kill like a thousand people, but there's no meaningful connection. Like the problem isn't that you kill a thousand people. The problem is there's a lack of meaningful connection between what the game wants you to feel and what you actually feel. Or even, um, yeah. even, a, even like a game that is full of thematic content, but it's delivered to you with like crushing voiceover yeah. narration the entire time. Like it's, yeah, yeah. Or just, just poor execution is another thing too. Um, uh, and, and I would say, you know, like the, a lack of, um, a narrative coherence is a part of poor execution. People say dissonant, but I think that's wrong because dissonance is an actually really useful, uh, tactic. Uh, a, a really useful device to use in art. Mm. Um, I think it's just a lack of coherence in bad writing. Yeah. Uh, what distance when you do it accidentally is mostly just incoherence. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, you you got these games that are very deliberate. They're short, but they're like like uh, offline where it's small but it's deep. It's literally you're going in a train tunnel. They offer depth. They <laughs> see what I did there. See. <laughs> You see that? Congratulations. Uh, I haven't made a single terrible joke today, by the way, so Matt, <laughs> you should feel very proud of me. Yeah, I, I know. know. You're <laughs> usually the pun master here. Oh, I'm yep. going to hit you over the head with that one. No, I mean, they're, they're small, and they don't seem like there's a lot in them, but they're packed with depth. They're packed with stuff. Uh, and you can talk about them for days, and they never give you... They don't answer their own questions. They imply things, but they don't... Uh, they don't try to be too definitive... You know, they don't, they, they just kind of let you experience them, which is, I think, what a lot of, generally speaking, good art, good fiction does that. You know, it suggests a lot of things, it makes arguments, it makes statements, but it also kind of lets you dialogue with them. 
uh, and, and interpret them. And that's part of what keeps them alive as art forms mm-hmm. and what keeps them uh, personally effective. One of the, the, I think one of the ways I describe it is that lots of games are very, uh, just want to make you do, whereas something mm-hmm. like offline is very content to just let you be. Yeah, yeah, um, it lets you be. That's lets really you important. Think mm-hmm. and feel, and it's it's okay with passivity and slowness as mm-hmm. um, potential sites of gameplay, which is a, I yeah. know is a, like a shitty buzzwordy term, uh, but everyone knows what I mean when I say that. So. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna like redefine the wheel right now, you know. I'm not writing that. I'm not writing that essay right now. But um, it's a it's a site of yeah of of you know interpretive power, which is kind of interactivity of responsive power of um, like a meaningful engagement between an yeah. actor and a, and a game system. So yeah. whatever you want to call it, I don't know. I mean, as long as you understand the term and have a, a workable definition for it, I don't get too mad about that stuff. Yeah. All right. That, I think, is it on offline, if no one has right. anything else to say. I, th- I think we it was good. We, yeah. we wa- we've run long. We actually ended up running long. I know. Yeah. So we have questions. Two questions. Oh, oh you're right. That's we more did. than I thought you would have. <laughs> Uh, Jackson, do you want to go first with your question? Okay. Uh, this is Jackson here with a quick editor's note. The first question deals with mental illness in video games, so a trigger warning for open discussion of suicidal thoughts and self-harm. And then after that, there's some Star Trek spoilers, I guess. I don't know. But uh, if any of that's a problem for you, then don't listen to the rest of this podcast. There's only like 10 minutes left. All right. Thank you. Question. I forgot we had questions. Damn it. Um, question one from Cho is: uh, What do you? What are what you feel are the best representations of mental illness in games that aren't hokey bullshits? Oh wow! <laughs> this is gonna be hard. Yeah. <sighs> okay, let me think about this for like a minute. Actually, know what I'm okay. gonna do? I'm gonna mm-hmm. look because I'm sure if I look at like my itch collection i'm gonna spot again i'm gonna be like that's the one so i i would say 222 but that's more about death i think yeah um that's my my interpretation of it bees wing has a really it's a, it's not about mental illness but it has a really uh, beautiful kind of depiction of it um, i've really been meaning to play that i need to sit down with it it has a, there's a depiction of it of specifically of a dissociative personality disorder. Um, and it's, um, one of the most memorable, beautiful moments in the game is you, you talk to this character that has this, this particular illness. Um, and it, it looks like it's comorbid with probably some other things. Um, and they just, they, they speak in the third person and, um, yeah. they just sort of, they, they just kind of tell you their biography in these little snippets and you have to kind of, they're all over the map in the game and you have to kind of find them in a particular order. And when you find them in this particular order, they just, they tell you things and you just listen. That's all you do. You don't help them. You don't save them. You just listen to them. That's all they really want. Uh, and it's, it's wonderful. It's one of my, one of my favorite things. Uh, it's great. Um, what are some other good ones though? Um, I I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention actual sunlight here. I, I don't even know if I like that game, 
uh, but it gave me such an intense reaction after I played it. Like, I wrote a thing about... I don't even know if it's a good thing anymore because I wrote it like a year ago at this point, but it was a very honest thing at the time. Mm. And the the way that game... Like, for about a minute after I completed that game, I was like, I should kill myself. I should commit suicide. That's oh, the... Th- that's the... Yeah, trigger warning, by yeah. the way. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll put that... I'll edit in a trigger warning before that. Uh, but that that's the space that game put me in and then obviously I came down from that uh, but that it was able to even like I feel like so many uh, portrayals of mental illness or depression especially uh, it, I come at it from this point of having to be helpful and having to persuade people to this to help the, the healthy notion think, thinking better whereas what actual sunlight allowed was this acceptance of all these negative harmful parts of depression mm-hmm. as and you are able to keep them within your humanity rather than what i feel is this rejection of those parts in order to put you on the track to being getting better mm-hmm. so that's what i took away from actual sunlight was this sense of validation and humanity that i no matter how de- depressed i'd be i'm still a person worth caring for mm-hmm. which there are way, like there are different ways you can read that game especially if you don't have I don't. That game probably plays like the saddest, most unhelpful thing to people who do not have depression. But that to was me, my reaction. To be fair, so. <laughs> yeah, I know we've we've had this conversation off off a podcast many times. But that's a very complicated personal game for me, and I'm still still working through my feelings on it. Okay. Uh, well, I have to. I haven't actually played that one, but yeah, that's that's heavy. Um, yep. But it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see games that just sort of engage with that straight up. Um, so the one I was talking about before is by Jack Kingspooner. Um, and the other one that I, I, I thought of while you were talking was uh, There Are Monsters Under Your Bed by Caitlin Tremblay, yeah. which also very, very similarly, very frankly, deals with um, the darker sides of depression, and it also doesn't offer a clean resolution. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, it implies some a very, very dark resolution. Um yeah. And what it does, it's what's kind of interesting about it is it's a twine game, and it uses like like dungeon crawler RPG conventions to talk about a girl who's confined herself. Who I think the the game is like a self insert autobiography, um, who's basically confined herself to her room, um, and like she's she has curtains drawn and she basically kind of lives isolated in darkness, um. And she finds, you know, she'll fight monsters and she'll find, uh, like, leather caps or whatever, like, equipment. But you all get the sense that, the, you know, the monsters aren't... I mean, they're allegorical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's no real way to uh, succeed in this context, in this isolation. There's no yeah. real way to combat the monsters. And the, and the um, equipment that you find, one's a leather vest and there's a leather cap, um, are, in essence... Uh, useless. They don't do anything. And you get the sense from the way that they're described that they're actually her own skin. Like, she's ripping off pieces of her own body and she's, like, self-harming. Yeah. Um, which, I guess that's another trigger warning. Um, and, you, yeah, you, that's sort of implied through this, like, uh, it's like this subversion of conventions in a really uncomfortable way. Um, that it's like a disempowerment fantasy, mm-hmm. and it it yeah, and it pushes it to some very very uncomfortable lengths, um, but it does it really really well. Um, yeah. So like that that would be another one is probably there are monsters under your bed is a really good one. 
that cool. doesn't get a lot of love. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the absolute opposite direction in terms of tone, <laughs> I have a question that I'm writing in first time, uh, writer in or, uh, all the time listener. Matthew, you on the line? Go ahead. Yeah. This one's for Lana. <laughs> Where is everyone's hot for wharf? And if that game is dead, please tell me what it was about <laughs> because I want it so bad. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh my god, I feel so bad about it. Because I keep thinking about it. It's on my mind. I think but about it's... it also about once a week, so. Uh, it's, it's on the back burner. Um, I do intend to finish it eventually. Okay. I want to retool it a bit because I wasn't as, cause when I started making it, I wasn't as familiar with Construct 2, which was, uh, that's what I'm making it in. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't really that happy with how a lot of it was turning out, because I was still learning a lot of basic things, and now I can go back to it and probably make something a little bit more substantial. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a parody game from S- Star Trek that kind of crosses over both TNG and DS9, um, and sort of just, it's, it's a joke based on the fact that, like, Worf, kind of gets it with everybody like like Worf gets around yeah a lot yeah that's because Worf can get around yeah (laughs) like he's there's a lot of like hot Klingon action on that on both those shows between man he gets with Deanna Troy it's so good he gets with Dax uh he almost gets with he does get with Esri that one time that that happens. Uh no, like there's a but there, and there's, there's all kinds of other like weird subtext with Worf. Like that dude gets around. So I just kind of made a I started making kind of a game where like it had like a bobblehead aesthetic where I just took like stills of like different actors from both shows mm-hmm. and like pixelated them and like put them in the game and you have to like get to Worf and like make out with him as like heads floating through space and you have to like avoid a bunch of different objects like uh like spaceships and things to mm-hmm. get to him in time all right and if you cool. you have like a like a warmth meter so cuz you know space is very cold so every time you get hit you, you your temperature drops and you have to like I get, get it. Every, everyone everyone's hot for warmth that's yeah. a good mm. Mm. so it's like it's super funny and it's in <laughs> compared to a lot of my other games it's uh not particularly thoughtful. I just sort of, <laughs> I was just trying to make it for fun. If, um, if this ever sees the light of day, not only will I let's play it, I will write fan fiction for it. Okay, cool. <laughs> promise you here because it's Your the promise. most exciting thing in the world. Okay. Well, yeah, the, the sort of the idea was, yeah, you just, you, you, you cling, you cling to wharf for warmth. Oh, if only I could. <laughs> he's just so hot. Um, and he's, is like, this... floating out in space. He's, like, the only hot thing in space. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best. Yeah. So uh, Is it going to be uh, Worf the Weight? Bye. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm glad we're done. I'm glad we're done. Okay. You know so... what the worst thing about that is? That took me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> next I month. I get it now, though. Um, next month, we are... We're going to have to sit down, Jackson, and talk about doing smaller games more often, but we didn't do that for next month. <laughs> no. Next month, we're going in the exact opposite direction and playing that PS3 classic and this, the year of the PS3, Yakuza 3. 
cool. which is as Very far as we can get it. from small games as possible. Yeah. <laughs> should be a, a fun time. Uh, I, I have a lot of affection for that, and we'll we'll talk about that. It'll be good. Um, yeah. And that'll be at the end of February, and uh, we'll see after that. Um, Lana, thank you so much for being on. No problem. Yes, yeah, seriously, thank you. And, it was a good time. Uh, fun. Do you want to plug all of the things? Okay, what are all of the things? Um, Anything you want to plug. So you decide. I uh, The fourth issue of uh, Arcade Review is coming out soon, and I'll be in that. Um, so pick that up when it comes out. Um, I, my site is Sufficiently Human, where I put all of my independent writing, where you can support me on Patreon. And I'm trying, I'm getting to the point where I'm saving money, and I'm going to put out a quarterly arts magazine starting this year, I hope. I'd like to get it out in March. Um, so it'll be, it won't just be video games, it's going to be like comics and visual art and writing and whatever else. Um, and I'll be going around asking for pitches from people. Um, and I'll be, I've, I've, what I've done is instead of, uh, I'll, I'll be putting out uh, the magazine itself for free and I'll uh, be using my Patreon money to set up an investment fund so that I can pay people properly uh, for their contributions. And hopefully I can turn that into something. Um and there's my podcast, Sufficiently Human with Alani Stewart, and uh, those are the things that I'm doing right now. Uh, other than just trying to carry small games and, and build like a real infrastructure for them. Oh, hey. Jackson, follow that up with your podcast. <laughs> Shut up, Matt. <laughs> You're on it, too. I know. Uh, um, we have another podcast called Trashback Ratio at trashbackratio.com. We just watched Do the Right Thing. That's a very good movie. You should listen to our discussion of it. Uh, and that's that's me. I'm on Twitter at tylea002 also. Okay. Yeah. You said my Twitter. It's mecha poetic, but yeah, mm-hmm. that's my Twitter. Yep. I also have an itch.io page, which all that stuff is like linked on my Twitter. It's pinned to my profile, so if you want to check out my work, it's all there. And uh, I have another podcast, a uh, book club uh, called Books for Crooks. You can find it at booksforcrooks.tumblr.com. We are reading Americana by uh, Chimamanda Adichie. Uh, we're going to have probably a very awkward discussion when we do that in a couple weeks. So look forward to that. As always, you can find this on iTunes uh, or Stitcher if you're that person. Uh, rate and review us, please, please, please. Um, I'm on Twitter, LitRock, L-I-T-R-O-C-K. Jackson writes on the website. I don't bother to do that anymore, apparently, at abnormalmapping.com. And we do Let's Plays. Jackson's finishing up Alan Wake. I'm about to start Captain Toad. Uh, hmm. We're probably going to bring back small ones soon, Jackson, right? Is that a thing we, we're going to do? Well, we were trying to find a way to do that properly because we thought that uh, just talking as our instant reactions isn't, like selling them properly we should be we want to take time to like craft a video there but we don't know what to do we're thinking of something yep so there'll be more video content uh thanks so much everybody for watching again thank you lana and uh You're very welcome. have a good january Bye.